so first of all, before I, before I begin, let me commend you on, on caring about foster youth. Uh, I worked with a program called First Star for a number of years, and it's a transitional program for high school students who are in the foster care system going into college. And one thing that's not talked a lot about is how difficult it is for foster youth to go to college. Um, something like 95% of foster youth do not attend college uh, when they graduate high school. Uh, part of that, if you've gone to college, you, you don't really think about the support system you have around you. Um, getting laundry done, having somebody to help you with loans, your car breaks down, where you live when school isn't in session. All of these things are things that probably a lot of you didn't have to think much about. But for foster youth, going to college is a hill that's too high to climb very often. Um, and so I, I would ask you to, you know, this Sunday it's great to care about this, but I, I know a lot of former foster youth, and they wouldn't have made it without people around them to help them because sometimes their family was unable to do it. So thank you for that. This feels kind of like coming home again and kind of not in a way. Um, yeah, as Ben said, uh, I attended Joy Community Fellowship in Pittman for 13 years, my wife for longer. And, um, and also my son had Cub Scouts in this building. So uh, it's a whole different experience being here in this capacity and a better one now that I'm not in charge with, of like a bunch of 10-year-olds. So. so anyway, um, as a high school English teacher, Obviously, I have some things that are favorites of mine. Uh, I don't love everything I teach equally, although I pretend to love everything, because um, otherwise high school students don't really care that much about what you're doing. Um, as I've aged and I've experienced life a little more, um, I've learned to love certain things more and more. Um, what I love are things that have what I call capital T truth, which means that essentially they paint a picture of human experience that's universally relatable. And one of these works, a play called Death of a Salesman, um, is uh, incredibly meaningful to me for that reason. There are no spoiler alerts needed for this play. It's in the title. Um, the main character, Willie Loman, is a salesman, and it's the story of his life and his death. It's a tragedy. Uh, it's a play that focuses on the American dream. And its capital T truth would be recognizable by any Christian. But like a lot of things in the secular world, it has only half the truth. The play is not only about a failed salesman, but it's also about um, his family and the consequences of Willie's words on his wife Linda and his children Biff and Happy. Both sons listen intently to the advice of their father. And this advice points to success and in business as the only hope for acceptance in the world and self-fulfillment. As adults, however, both sons experience the evident futility of trying to achieve these things through the working world. On one hand, we hear from Biff about his thoughts after stealing an expensive pen from the office of someone who not only wouldn't give him a job, but wouldn't even see him when he went for an interview. I stopped in the middle of the building, and I saw the sky. I saw the things that I love in this world, the work and the food and the time to sit and smoke. And I looked at the pen and said to myself, what am I grabbing this for? Why am I trying to become what I don't want to be? What am I doing in an office 
making a contemptuous begging fool of myself when all I want is out there waiting for me the minute I say I know who I am. Willie, why can't I say that? Happy, the more successful and confident brother, still has the same frustration as Biff, but it takes a different form. Well, I spent six or seven years after high school trying to work myself up. Shipping clerk, salesman, business of one kind or another. And it's a measly manner of existence to get on that subway on the hot mornings in summer, to devote your whole life to keeping stock, or making phone calls, or selling, or buying, to suffer 50 weeks of the year for a two-week vacation, when all you really desire is to be outdoors with your shirt off, and always to have to get ahead of the next fella. And still, that's how you build a future. Well, I'm sure those of us in the working world can uniquely relate to either Biff or Happy, or maybe both. The underlying issue both brothers face is imminently relatable to everyone. Child, teen, adult student. Going to school, retired, poor, middle class, wealthy, male or female, we all have the same struggle. We are often either grabbing at something we don't have, or thinking we might as well throw away all we've worked for, as it's not what we thought it would be. We have everything, a future full of possibilities, but we might as well have nothing. My high school and college students talk a lot about anxiety. Grades, the hopelessness of ever buying a home, the pressures of social media. Gen Z definitely has a lot against them. And let me do like a little side note. I love Gen Z. Um, as a high school teacher, I, I find a lot to relate to. I think Gen X and Gen Z are twins. And uh, we'll talk about that more later if you want to privately talk about that with me. But one thing that I love about Gen Z is how they keep getting knocked down and they seem to keep getting up. But Gen Z has a lot against them. They have a reason to be anxious, right? But that's not their big problem. Anxiety is just a symptom of a spiritual problem. And it's the same problem that Biff and Happy and all of us sitting here face every day. And that problem is discontentment. In the passage we're studying today, Philippians 4, verses 10 through 13, Paul pro provides a solution to the scourge of discontentment, what he calls a secret. Thankfully, it's an open secret, and it's laid out in God's word for all of us to discover together. So after we study this together today, You'll never be discontented again, right? Because we'll know the secret. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, if you want to learn about how discontented you are, try to prepare a sermon on contentment and you'll find out. Um, so <laughs> one thing, however, that we need to realize is that this is our default mode, is to be discontented. And we need scripture to help us get out of that default mode. Discover the secret along with me as we read the passage together. If you could turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to learn this secret of contentment. Lord, not necessarily uh, because we want to temporarily feel better, but we want to have an abiding certainty and peace that comes through the knowledge that, Lord, um, you have given us all we need for this life and the next. I pray, Lord, I would be faithful to describe that hope that we have. And through that, those of us who feel discontentment would be content. In the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. As we study this passage from Philippians, I believe we'll discover that contentment is related to our relationship with three things. Our current circumstances, our experiences, and our God. When we discover from Paul how these three relationships affect our ability to be content, the secret to contentment becomes our own. So I don't know everyone's history here. Um, I don't want to assume anything about anyone. But I'm pretty certain that if you're sitting in this room, you're not in prison, unless you've escaped from prison. And if that's the case, maybe you should be concerned about those sirens. But the Apostle Paul, the author of this letter to the Philippian church, he is in prison when he writes this letter. When he writes this letter, he's chained in prison in Rome and awaiting trial after having been arrested following his three missionary trips described in the book of Acts. So let's read verse 10 again with that knowledge. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So perhaps one of the things that stands out most in this passage is that I imagine what the Philippian church must feel is a little more than concern. Um, how would you feel if a friend, one of your leaders in this church community, was in prison unjustly, awaiting the executioner's summons? In the Roman Empire, prison was not viewed as a place of punishment as it is in our country today. Nor was it considered, as some fool themselves into thinking today, a place of restoration. It was a hole in the ground where you were thrown without food or sufficient clothing. And if your friends didn't come to bring you those things, you eventually sickened and you died. If you were to live to face the comparative dignity of execution, it was only because your friends had to concern themselves enough to help you with your circumstances in a practical way. And this is likely what Paul's talking about here, this kind of concern. So try to picture yourself in Paul's circumstances. Try to think what kind of letters you'd write to your family, your friends. What kind of letters do you write from the prison of your anxiety? What kind of letters do you write from the prison of your debt? What kind of letters do you write from the prison of your bad grades or your failing marriage or your unsatisfying job? I imagine your letters or your social media posts, probably in this case, wouldn't sound like Paul's. Neither would mine. Look at verse 11. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, Paul says. Paul writes to some of his only friends, people who literally hold what remains of his life in their hands, from a dungeon that's effectively the waiting room for death. And he says the equivalent of, I'm cool. In our little prisons, we often sound more like Biff or Happy. We scream, get me out of here. Or more likely, we just give up. I know this because I murmur and complain about my circumstances daily. And this is too often my experience as well. So earlier in Philippians, 
if you could turn to chapter 2, verses 14 to 16, Paul warns people like you and me about complaining. Here's what he says. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I want to be a light, you say. I want to stand out in my generation. Well, stop murmuring and be content. Easier said than done, right? Paul's a saint after all, right? And we're not. I'm sure you're thinking what I've often thought of Paul and other Christian heroes of the past. I'd never be content on the floor of a damp cell awaiting my death like they were. There must be some kind of special holiness that I have, that they have, that I could never have. Before you say never, let's examine the passage a bit further and see what else it might have to tell us about the secret to contentment. So look at the second half of verse 11. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul was once like us, but he had to learn. See, not only does our relationship to and our perception of our current circumstances contribute to our ability to be content, but contentment is learned through experience. And the Bible tells us, as does the evidence of our own life, that eventually we all experience some kind of suffering. Few verses of Scripture are as straightforward about the universality of the experience of suffering as Psalm 9010, which says, The length of our days is 70 years, or 80 if we are strong. Yet their pride is but labor and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. According to the psalmist, a bird's eye view of life is, life's a lot of work and suffering, but don't worry, it'll be over soon. <laughs> but not only, encouraging, right? But not only do we have to learn to be content in our suffering, somehow we have to learn to be content in our success, in our pleasure. Look at verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. See that? How to be low and how to abound. Plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Elsewhere in Scripture, we can see the dangers of our own success. But no verse sums up this kind of learning in abundance that Paul's talking about better than Ecclesiastes 5.10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. The secret of contentment is not to have everything go our way, as happy discovered. It can often be the source of its opposite, discontentment. This is what death of a salesman gets right. It's a universal truth. What we learn from getting what we want is that getting what we want is not the end goal of life. Many of us, I'm sure, catch ourselves envying celebrities or the super wealthy. Look at their talents, the acclaim of the crowd, the cars, the romance, the homes, the trips, the luxury. Don't we want that? I'll confess that I often think I do and, and get envious 
of people who have those things. However, I can't think of a single celebrity, despite their smiles on Instagram, who seem to know Paul's secret. They've all gotten what they want, and they're still not content. They can't face abundance any better than they can face need, as Paul proclaims he can in verse 12. Why do you think all these rich people are always trying to launch themselves to Mars? They can't find what they need on Earth, so it must be on another planet? That is not the secret to have all we want. We need to learn the secret to contentment, and someone needs to teach us. When I think of learning to face abundance and need in the way Paul describes, I think of the true story of a man called Job, as described in the Old Testament book of the same name. I recommend you read the book when you get a chance if you've never read the book. It's not as daunting as you think it is. Job begins the book in abundance. A rich man with land and homes and livestock. He's got crops, a fully grown family. I think he has seven sons and three daughters. Most important, he's designated by God himself as the most righteous man of the day. And then tragedy strikes Job. He loses everything. His children are killed. His homes are destroyed. He develops painful wounds all over his body. His wife and his friends either mock, curse, or blame him for his suffering. Eventually, Job turns and does the same thing to God. However, despite his righteousness, Job had to learn the same secret as Paul. And in God's providence, this is how he had to learn it, through extreme suffering. Near the end of the book, in Job 42, chapters 2 through 6, so, so if you could turn there with me. Job 42, verses 2 to 6. Here, Job says something I'm sure many of us have said some version of when we've seen the true purposes of our sufferings and have come out on the other side. Chapter 42, verses 2 to 6. Job speaking to God. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I've uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. I don't know many of you, and even those I do know, I don't know the extent to which you are currently suffering. Maybe your life looks like Job's right now. Maybe this is a time of abundance for you, when everything seems to be breaking your way. I imagine, however, regardless of the details, you are tempted to complain on a daily basis. Maybe it sounds like this. I'm so busy. I never have any time to myself. Or it sounds like, I can't seem to catch the same breaks everyone else catches. Try for a minute to see your situation as a school. And this moment, this abundance or need as the first or maybe the 1,000th lesson in contentment. So, so far in this message, we've discovered from Paul our level of contentment has a relationship to how our current, we view our current circumstances and also what we can learn from our experiences of abundance and need. If I were to stop here, you'd have some life advice, which, to be honest, wouldn't hold water in the real world. 
Um, imagine I just stopped, right? <laughs> There's another relationship that makes it possible to find contentment despite our success or sufferings. A relationship that makes it possible to learn contentment. Philippians 4.13 describes this essential relationship. So you can flip back to Philippians. Philippians 4.13, one of those verses you could see as a tattoo on someone's arm. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In the context of the book of Philippians, this hymn is most definitely Jesus. Paul famously met Jesus on the road to Damascus. One moment, Paul was a powerful persecutor of God's people. The next, he was one of the most powerful tools in God's hands for the spread of the message of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Here's how Paul describes this in another letter he wrote, the book of Galatians, in chapter 1, verses 11 to 24. I'm, no, I'm making you flip a lot, right? Uh, Galatians 1, verses 11 to 24. It's a longer passage, so it'd be good if you followed with me. <clears throat> for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remain with him 15 days. Um, but I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I did not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. This conversion experience is essential to Paul's contentment, and it is just as essential to yours. The strength in Philippians 4.13 is supernatural in nature, and it must come from a supernatural source, God. There's no way to will yourself to be content in life. Just try to do that. <laughs> Without the gospel, Paul mentions in Galatians, there's no strength, only despair. Through another college ministry, Rowan Christian Fellowship, I first heard of the work Jesus Christ did on my behalf. This gospel, this good news Paul mentions. For years after, I thought I could, in response, make myself good, acceptable to God by my own efforts. As you could guess, those of you who know me today especially, that didn't work out so well. Then through the reading of the book of Romans, and among other things, teaching I heard at Joy Community Fellowship, I was turned from an enemy of God to a child of God. It took years, but God brought me to new life, showing me that, as Romans 8.1 promises, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If I took the name of Jesus upon me, I was now forgiven. If you know me, you also know that I love all kinds of music, and I will talk your ear off about it, so don't ask me about it. 
and I still like much of the music that I loved before my conversion. But I look at this music differently now. You okay, Harrison? Okay, good. Thank God I can no longer relate to lyrics like this from a Cure song. It doesn't matter if we all die. Ambition in the back of a black car. In a high building, there's so much to do. Going home time, just a story on the radio. Something small falls out of your mouth, and we laugh. A prayer for something better. Please love me. Meet my mother. But the fear takes hold. Creeping up the stairs in the dark, waiting for the death blow. Man, that's some dark stuff, isn't it? I was a dark teenager. As a teenager, these lyrics appealed to me for the same reason Death of a Salesman appeals to me. It tells the truth. That song's true, or at least it's half true. When we get all we want, it gives us nothing. We're just in a waiting room for death, one with outdated magazines and Muzak piped in through the speakers. There's no way to find contentment from this world, so why bother, is what myself and a lot of other dark teenagers thought. However, this is not the message of Scripture, not the message of the gospel. As Paul proclaims in Philippians 4, we can do all things through him who gives us strength. When we've been born again, we've been united to Christ. And contentment in all circumstances is one of the benefits of this unity with Christ. This is how Paul describes it in yet another letter, the book of Colossians, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. If you could turn there, that'd be good. Colossians, good thing all these books are near each other, right? Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Christian, if you hope to find contentment in your abundance and need, cling to the promise of the gospel. Look past this life to the things above. Gather strength from Jesus Christ. What's this look like? Well, if you're not reading your Bible at least daily, the promises that God makes to you through his word will not come freshly to mind when you need them. I am ashamed to admit that this year is the first year I have been faithful to read through the Bible in a year. And I'm 44 years old and have been a Christian for 18 years. Something like that. And this is the first year I've made it this far. There's only a month left, so maybe I'll drop the ball now. But somehow God has been faithful to get me up early, 20 minutes early every day, most days. Some days I need to catch up to read his word. And there have been so many times this year, just a couple weeks ago, where I was talking to somebody. And what I had read that day was directly relevant to them. And I was able to point to it in scripture. And there have been moments of darkness or doubt where I have needed a reminder of certain things. And that charging up in the morning before I face a bunch of high school students has been really helpful to me. Um, so I would encourage you to read your Bible every day, even after you have to wake up 15 minutes earlier to do so. Do it. And look, 40, look, I'm, I'm speaking to you today, and I'm telling you this is the first year I did it. So you can start any time. Don't let a failure in the past to do that stop you. 
It's a, it's a graceful thing. It's not a law thing. Don't hold it over your head as, a, as shame. But it's a joy, and it's useful to you to read your Bible every day. Also, Christian, surround yourself with people who go to Christ for their strength rather than this world. This means being a part of a local church like this one, one where Jesus Christ is lifted up as the only hope for Christians, not just for salvation, but for hope in this life. The advantage of taking the Lord's Supper every week is that you can't go a week without a reminder that the solution for your separation from God and the struggles of this life comes from outside yourself. Something real happened in history, and you had nothing to do with it. And it gives you hope in this life and the next. There's nothing that you nor your circumstances can change that thing that happened 2,000 years ago. One of my favorite things to do as an elder, actually, I'm not going to say one. My favorite thing to do as an elder is when I get to distribute the Lord's Supper to the people at Mercy Hill because it's almost like I'm receiving it 30, 40 times. And every time I say, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, or as far as the east is from the west, so your sins have been removed from you, all these things I tend to say, I'm saying them to myself, and I'm seeing in people's eyes that they needed to hear it. So the Lord's Supper every week, receiving that is a good way to receive contentment. When you're surrounded by complaining, realize that you'll likely be tempted to do the same. If you cannot resist the temptation, say nothing or walk away. Okay, in case you haven't realized it, the worst gossipers and the most cliquish people in a high school are the teachers. And those of you who are teachers or in a high school can confirm that. I do not eat lunch with the other teachers because I can't control myself. I'm just honest. I want to be liked, and the thing you do to get liked is complain. So I sit by myself in my classroom and very often eat with students instead because they're usually not complaining, at least about the same things I'm tempted to complain about. So um, remove yourself from the situation. However, you can also be proactive and point to the promises of God or the hope of eternal life for people who maybe need to hear it. When you're faced with trials, pray. When you're faced with anxieties, pray. When you're faced with discontentment, pray or ask from prayer for prayer from people that you care about and care about you. One thing I love about my daughter, Autumn, is that whenever she's feeling anxious, she reaches out to me and asks me to pray for her. I love that. It's a reminder to me that I need to do the same to other people. That's hard to do with your dad, but she does it. And I better have something ready to say back to her to encourage her, right? But I have friends, my friend Harrison, not my son, but he's named after, my son's named after him, who used to go to Joy in Pittman as well, is, is a friend like that for me. My friend Matt is a friend like that for me. I know what they're going to say to me when I tell them I'm anxious or I'm worried or whatever, and I know at least that they're just going to pray for me. Pray when faced with trials, with anxieties, with feelings of discontentment. It's amazing how the Holy Spirit will use prayer to calm our hearts and to bring to mind the promises of God on our behalf. Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. For we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Pray not only in times of need, but also in times of abundance. Thanking God for the good things we experience daily, 
that we don't deserve is a good way to remind ourselves that these things are not ultimate things, that we can enjoy them, but if they were to be taken away, we would still have all we need in Jesus Christ. And if you don't know Jesus, I first have bad news for you. You will never be content. I pray you never fool yourself into thinking that you are. And also that you don't turn to sin in response to the futility of a life lived for mere earthly things. But there's also good news for you. As Romans 5.8 promises, but God demonstrates his love for you in this. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Believe this good news. Turn away from your sin, your pointless worship of earthly things, and trust the finished work of Jesus Christ to give you the hope in the next life, but also contentment in this one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask you, Lord, for this contentment which you promise in your word to be poured out among this people. I pray that it would be a real contentment, not a false one. I pray that we would no longer fool ourselves into thinking that the things this world has to offer, all good things, food and fun and family, jobs and homes and fun, good things, will not give us the ultimate thing, which is the certainty of being loved by our Father God and the promise of eternal life that you have won for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray that those who don't know that hope would know it today. And those Christians who forget that hope many times a day as I do and cling to earthly things for contentment would have those things torn away from them. That, Lord, we would turn to your Son, Jesus, as our only hope in this life and the one to come. It's in whose, his name that we pray. Amen.